you grab a seat and as you do get a Bible in front of you to Genesis chapter 15, Genesis 15. Um, hey, we, we know this, but broken promises sting. Broken promises sting. Uh, many of us probably in the room gather and um, if we had to dig down deep enough, we, we can look at some of the lingering effects of scars that we live with of, of someone who said they would do something or someone who made a promise or someone who covenanted something with us and uh, they didn't do what they said. Uh, they didn't keep what they promised. They didn't uh, hold to the covenant that they made. Um, all of us in here know that we're also, uh, we're also guilty of being on the offending side of this. We've not done all that we have said we would do and we've not uh, kept all the promises we've made, and we've not uh, held to maybe some covenants that we had said we would do, but broken promises sting. It's um, uh, fundamentally human uh, for us to experience people who have uh, broken promises with us and, and to experience the promises that we have broken. And it's, it's what brings amazing comfort to know that God is so very different from us. And, and we say often in the Christian world, and, and anything that we say often in the Christian world can, can um, easily become a cliche that loses its power, uh, but we, we remind ourselves often that all God says, he will do. Anything that God says will be. God keeps every promise he made down to the finest detail of that promise. His very character is a promise-keeping, covenant-keeping God. Um, today, as we look at Genesis 15, we're going to witness a bizarre and bloody and brutal scene of, of a covenant that God is going to seal with Abram. Throughout the book of Genesis, as, as we go all the way back to the beginning, Adam and Eve are created by God. Um, God tells them not to eat of a tree. They eat of the tree that God says not to. Sin enters the world. Um, Eve was deceived by the serpent. And uh, the Lord, right there in the beginning, uh, right after sin had entered the world, he looks at the serpent and he speaks a curse over the serpent. He says, uh, from Eve will come uh, uh, an offspring. And you will bruise the heel of this offspring, but this offspring is going to crush your head. And, and then as we go on in the story, the wickedness of man is so prevalent across the earth that the Lord looks down on it. And um, in his justice, um, he speaks a, a, a global catastrophe across the earth, a global flood, and, and all of humanity, save eight people, are wiped off the face of the earth. But on the other side of this flood, as the waters recede, there's this beautiful scene in which uh, God makes a covenant with Noah, and he looks at him and he says, never again will I wipe humanity off the face of the earth with a global flood. And there's a rainbow in this covenant is made. Uh, when we get to Genesis 15, there's another covenant that we come across here today. And this covenant is crucial. Uh, this covenant is crucial not only for our understanding of the book of Genesis, but for our understanding of the whole Bible and all of redemptive history. It's, it's what we call the Abrahamic covenant, God's covenant with Abraham. And, and we're going to get into what exactly God is covenanting with Abraham. But the biggest thing I want us to see today in Genesis 15, 15 chapters into the Bible, is that this is a covenant of grace. It is a covenant of grace. And here's why that's a really big deal. 
uh, throughout my undergrad and kind of comparative religion studies, um, the, the Bible would come under attack by those who were not believers of Jesus. And here's what I would often hear. Um, you have a schizophrenic God. Your God appears as one kind of God in the Old Testament, and he appears as another kind of God in the New Testament. Uh, the Old Testament God is all about wrath and judgment. The New Testament God, all about grace. Brock, you have a schizophrenic God, to which I say, no, we do not. Grace abounds from cover to cover. It is all over the book. That, that God is not a God who acts one way in the Old Testament and another in the New Testament. We see the fullness of God's justice and grace in the Old Testament, and we see the fullness of God's justice and grace in the New Testament. And I want you to see how this covenant that God makes with Abraham here is dripping in the grace of God. And it's good news for us that we would marvel at the grace that we'd marvel at the grace of God revealed in this bizarre and bloody and brutal covenant-sealing thing we're about to experience in an ancient Middle Eastern field. And so um, I we're going to make our way all the way through Genesis 15. I want us to pull, a, pull out two, two principles we're just going to rest in of what this chapter teaches us about God and what this chapter teaches us about us and we're going to come down to the end of the day with a, uh, an application that I hope is uh, deeply, deeply refreshing for all of us in the room here today. But get your eyes in God's word. Genesis 15, verse 1. After these things. Okay, let me just stop right there. Because uh, you, you start a chapter with those three words, after these things. It's important that all of us understand what the, these things were. Remember, last week in Genesis chapter 14, you have Lot and Abram separating. Lot uh, looks down at the Jordan River Valley, and it's lush, and it's green, and he heads down there, and, and he begins to settle amongst these five cities that are down in this Jordan River Valley. Uh, Abram stays up on the high ground. He stays in the land of Canaan, and, and there's these four eastern kings who come, and they attack these cities in the Jordan River Valley and everything is carried off and everything is plundered and Lot is uh, carried off with them and Uncle Abraham comes to the rescue and he delivers, uh, 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 he delivers these cities from these foreign kings. He restores their possessions and then you get down into this, this, this the neatest uh, worship moment that happens post-war where we're introduced to this priest king named Melchizedek. Uh, this priest king who will weave his way all through the rest of the Bible and who um, uh, Jesus comes as the later, fuller, perfect picture of a priest king. But something else happened at this post-war scene here that I want us to see that helps us understand what we're going to read in, G in Genesis 15. Uh, Genesis 14, verse 21. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. So remember, Abram's delivered Sodom from the hands of these enemies, and the king's like, listen, you can take all the plunder. You deserve it. You rescued us. Look at what Abram says, verse 22. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I've lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let honor and Eshel and Mamre take their share. After these things, right into, verse, right into chapter 15, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, and now look at what God tells him on the heels of rejecting the plunder offered to him by the king of Sodom. Fear not, Abram. I am your what? I'm your shield 
your reward shall be very great. Now, I, I want us to understand here, the Lord comes and he appears to Abram on the other side of this post-war scene where he's just been offered all kinds of riches from a foreign king. And the Lord says, good job. Remember something, Abram. I am your shield and your reward shall be very great. The Lord comes and he promises Abram two things. I will be your protector. You, you will need no allegiance with foreign kings. I myself will protect you. I will be your shield. And I will be your provider. Your reward shall be very great, Abram. And this is what the Lord says. But now, Abram's got a question. And Abram's question back to God is a very good question. Because God keeps showing up in Abram's life and he keeps telling him, listen, man, you're going to have kids and you're going to have all this land. Your reward's going to be very great. In fact, uh, we're about to witness in Genesis 15, the fourth time God is going to say to Abram, you're going to have descendants and you're going to possess this land. And Abram finally says back to God, listen, you keep saying that, but I'm not seeing that. Look at what he says here, verse two. But Abram said, oh Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, behold, you've given me no offspring and a member of my household will be my heir. He's going, God, listen, you keep telling me these things. And yet all I can do is look around right now at just the reality in which I'm living. And all I see is that a servant in my house is my heir and will inherit all that you have given me. Uh, uh, a moment, a faith-wavering moment for a deeply, deeply faithful man where he's going, God, you keep saying this, but I'm not seeing it. In fact, all I'm seeing is the fact that a servant is the next in line to all that you have given me. And the Lord says, no, 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 this isn't going to be so. A servant will not be your heir, but he doesn't just say it to Abram. He shows him it. Look at what happens in verse four. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And so if you can imagine this moment, where the Lord says, I, I, I'm, not even, I'm not only going to say this to you again, I want you to see this. And he leads Abram out into the ancient Middle Eastern night sky. And, and I don't know if you've ever experienced seeing a night sky unhindered by any light pollution around you. And so I, I've told this story a few times, but uh, we're in college. Um, we're in Maun, Botswana, this, this little village uh, in uh, the country of Botswana in southern Africa. And um, uh, one night, just a bunch of college guys were like, let's, let's drive out of the village. Let's look at the stars. And so we pile into our Jeeps and uh, we head out of the village and uh, we, we get out of way. It's just into the, like, the African expanse and we shut off the Jeeps and we kill the lights and we climb out the windows and uh, all of us get on the roofs of these Jeeps and we all lay back and almost simultaneously, a group of rambunctious college guys went absolutely silent. We have never seen the sky like that. 
we were used to a dark sky with a kind of a scattering of stars. What we saw as we laid our headbacks was a sky blanketed with stars. I didn't know that amount of stars existed in the galaxy. And as you picture Abram, who walks out here and the Lord says, look up. Abram, look up. Count them. If you could even possibly count them, here's what you need to know, Abram. Your offspring will be more numerous than this. And now, will Abram believe this? Will he believe it? Without a child to his name, the Lord now saying, your descendants will outnumber all of the stars that you see. Will belief reign or will unbelief persist? Verse 6, and he believed the Lord. And the Lord counted it to him as what? As righteousness. This is a big statement. This is a major verse for all of the Bible. Genesis 15:6 is one of the foundational verses of all of God's word. I want us to camp out here and take our time. Abram believed the Lord, and the Lord counted it, reckoned it, credited something to him, imputed something to him. Abram believed the Lord, and the Lord counted, reckoned, imputed, credited what to Abram? Righteousness. Get this. Abram did not do righteousness. Abram did nothing to be declared righteous before the Lord. What do we see it says that Abram did here? What did he do? He believed. Righteousness is by faith. From the front cover of the Bible to the back cover of the Bible. We are declared righteous before God by we are now, it's always been that way, and it always will be that way. Write this down. Our righteousness has always and will always come by faith alone. We can't, we can't earn it. We don't merit it. There's nothing we can do to, um, uh, to, to live out righteousness. It must be credited to our account by God through faith. Now, this, Genesis 15, 6, becomes the foundational, foundational passage for this doctrine of righteousness by faith we see all through the Bible. The New Testament writers again and again draw a line back to this statement right here. Look at what Paul writes in Romans chapter 4. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abram believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And Paul's great argument all through the book of Romans, that uh, our salvation is all of grace, 
that works can't get you there, he goes back to this encounter right here. Galatians chapter three, look at what Paul writes again. Let me ask you, uh, let me ask you only this. Did you receive the spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by healing with faith? Just as Abram believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Uh, Paul is combating these legalizers who have come into the region of Galatia. And, and people have been confused and they've been led astray back into some legalistic uh, trying to earn their salvation. And Paul says, no, no, no. That's not how it is. All the way back to Abraham, righteousness has come by faith. James chapter two, and the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. The book of James goes on to unpack and here's what a life lived by someone who has legitimate faith in Jesus looks like. But James is saying righteousness is by faith by faith. And listen, this, we have to get this. I believe one of the enemy's tactic for our culture especially, just the way that we kind of operate as a culture that everything we do has got to be, you know, you know, hard work earns it. And those are all, all good things, all good things. Pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. Go get it. The enemy uses that to really twist and make it so people cannot understand this basic gospel principle that your righteousness is not from anything that you have done. You can't earn it. You can't be righteous. You can't do righteousness. Your righteousness is by faith. And I want us to see, for us in this room, on this side of the death, burial, resurrection of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, I want you to see what he has done on our behalf. He has done all of the righteousness on our behalf. We are to simply believe. Jesus did it. Jesus did it. What did Jesus did? Here it is. Jesus lived out righteousness that we failed to. He lived it out. Jesus died absorbing the wrath of God for our unrighteousness. Jesus rose to give victory over sin and death. Jesus calls us to himself to surrender by faith. Jesus imputes, reckons, credits his righteousness to us. Jesus has done it all. We have done nothing. We simply believe. And through that belief, righteousness is credited, imputed, counted to us through what Christ has done. Praise the Lord. Amen. Now, this grace of God is about to be revealed to Abram in a bizarre and bloody and brutal scene that he will never forget. Look at what happens here in verse 7. And he said to him, this is God speaking to Abram, and he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. Okay, so remember in the last paragraph, God has said, let me reaffirm, you're going to have descendants. 
Now God is reaffirming, and you're going to have this land to possess. This is at the heart of the Abrahamic covenant. You'll have this descendants. You'll grow as a family. That family will become a nation. That nation is going to possess this promised land. So now he's getting into the promise of the land. And he said to him, I'm the Lord who brought you out of the early Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But Abram's got another good question. But he said, oh, Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? Again, you keep saying this. How will I know that this will happen? He said to him, verse 9, here's how the Lord answers that. Abram says, how do I know? Here's what, how the Lord answers that. Bring me a heifer, three years old, a female goat, three years old, a ram, three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Makes sense? Seems fitting? What in the world? It gets weirder. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. What is going on? Abram brings a, what's it say, a heifer, brings a cow, brings a goat, he brings a ram. And if, and if you, um, this scene is absolutely bizarre to us in our culture because I want you to try to picture driving home from church today, looking out into a field and just seeing a man go into town, sawing animals in half, blood going everywhere. This is just bizarre and brutal and bloody. But this is what Abram does. He saws these animals in half and it says he, he, um, he lays he lays the halves of these animals opposite of each other. So half the heifer here, half the heifer here, half the ram here, half the ram here, half the goat here, half the goat here. So there's a, a space in between them. And we read this as 2020 uh, kind of Western culture, and we're going, what is going on? Abram would have had much more context to what is going on here in this scene. And uh, uh, R.C. Sproul helps give us some of the context that Abram would have understood. When covenants were made in the ancient Near East, certain rites would accompany the agreement in order to signify what would happen if one or both parties failed to live up to their end of the pact. One common ritual involved dismembering animals and then laying the pieces in two rows side by side with a path in between the individuals making the covenant would then pass between the animals and invoke a curse upon themselves if they broke the agreement. And performing this right, both parties were in effect saying, if I do not fulfill the terms of this covenant, may the destruction that befell these animals also be upon my head. So um, I represent one side of a party making a covenant with another. Uh, another person represents that, the other side of the party making a covenant. We come together between this path of two uh, of, of, of ripped apart animals. We walk through this together, and in doing so, we are covenanting to each other. If I don't keep my part in this, may my fate be like these dead animals right here. Praise God for handshakes today, right? And so Abram has context to what is being prepared here. And so what he expects is a two-sided covenant to happen. What Abram expects to come next is that two parties are going to come together, pass through this, 
and covenant to each other, a, a covenant that is binding on the other party fulfilling their commitment. And that's what makes what comes next so unexpected. Verse 12. As the sun was going down, what do the next three words say? As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. The Lord puts him to sleep. What can you do if you're sleeping? Nothing. Some of you are like, well, you've not seen my husband sleepwalk, right? Like, dude's made of peanut butter and jelly at 2 a.m. The Lord puts Abram to sleep so that Abram can do nothing. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. The Lord is prophesying the Israelites are going to go down into Egypt. They're going to be there 400 years. That's coming. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. The Lord prophesying there's going to be this great exodus out of the land of Egypt, and they're going to come and settle in this promised land right here. Verse 15, as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So the Lord has spoken the terms of the covenant. And, and now this is where we expect Abram's going to wake up and he's going to come to the path of dead animals and, and something representing God's going to come to the path of the dead animals. They're going to covenant to each other. The Lord's going to say, I'm going to be your God. And Abram's like, I'm going to be your faithful people. And they're going to pass through together, right? Verse 17, when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, to your offspring, I give this land from the river of Egypt, the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Who passes between the animals? Who passes between the animals? Who passes between the animals? And who doesn't? The Lord faithful and strong. Never will he break a covenant that he makes. He alone passes between the animals. He puts uh, Abram as the father of faith, the father of this nation, the father of what will become a nation of his people. He puts him to sleep and he says, you won't be walking through this animal with me. Why? Because you can't keep your end of the covenant. Your people will break it again and again and again. Your people will be a faith-wavering, faith-wandering, faith-floundering, faithless people. And guess what? I will be faithful. My covenant to you does not depend on your faithfulness to it. In fact, I will love you so much, I will keep both sides of the covenant on your behalf. This is what the Lord is saying here in a smoking fire pot and a flaming church that he will be a forever faithful God to a faith-wandering, faith-wavering, faith-floundering, faithless people. Thank you, God. 
Our righteousness is all by faith, but here's what we need to know about this faith. It's the second thing, write it down. Our faith rests solely in a God who keeps our side of the covenant on our behalf. We can't keep our side of the covenant. Fifteen chapters into the Bible, God says, I will be your faithful covenant-keeping God. He puts man to sleep knowing that he can't pass through this path with him because there's no way he can stay faithful to that covenant on his own. And so one day he will send his son to live the perfect life we cannot live and to die the criminal's death we deserve to die, to keep both his side of the covenant and our side of the covenant on our behalf. And our righteousness comes by faith in that covenant-keeping Savior, Jesus Christ, period, who has kept our side and his side. God is a faithful, covenant-keeping God to us, faith-wavering, covenant-breaking people. Praise the Lord. So what do we do in light of a message like this today? What's the application? What are we supposed to take away from a bloody scene of animals ripped in half in this ancient Middle Eastern field? Here's the application. Believe. What else can I stand up here and say to you through a chapter of the Bible that has said your righteousness comes by faith alone and oh, by the way, you, you've done nothing for it. God has done everything. I mean, how ironic for me to end a message like this and say, now three things for you to do this week. Do nothing, do nothing, and do nothing. We bring our nothing to the covenant. God has brought everything. We believe in this Savior, and we are granted righteousness by faith. So we believe. (laughs) We believe that Jesus really is who he says he is. We ask the Lord to grant us belief. Um that all we have to do is believe and not try to merit it or earn it in some way that our culture tells us that we need to. Uh, we, We believe that God really is a God who is faithful to every promise that he makes. We believe that we are saved by grace alone. Grace is unmerited favor, favor we didn't earn, a free gift of God. We believe by faith that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone. We believe that God is powerful enough to keep us and to hold us. We believe that God has an inheritance waiting for us that will not be taken and will not be moved. We believe that the only way our life changes in a 
into greater Christ-likeness is to first and foremost believe on this Jesus. We believe heaven is real. We believe that Jesus has won it all for us. We believe that he is sitting at the right hand of God, ruling and reigning. We believe that he'll come back again and he will take his people with him. We believe he will create a new heaven and a new earth that won't be plagued by the pain in which we're living in now. We believe we'll join the chorus of the angels in singing holy, holy, holy forever, ever and ever. We believe there is nothing more great and glorious than our King of Kings and Lord of Lords. We believe there's nothing more worthy of our lives than to spend them for his glory and the advancement of his kingdom. We believe. We believe Jesus has saved us by his grace, period. And we rest in that and we worship from that. And the powerful teaching of the grace of God does not begin with Matthew chapter one, it begins with Genesis chapter one. We see his grace all through the scriptures and we savor it as people desperately in need of this grace. Church, stand with me. Father, we ask and pray that you would grant us belief, that you'd grant us faith. And I pray for anyone in here who has never just started at the foundation of faith by believing in you as their Lord and Savior. Jesus, I pray you'd come get their heart right now. Um, I pray for believers in the room all over right now who, who we need to believe that everything that you say you do, you'll do, you will do. And everything that you promise us you are, you really are. Uh, Lord, help us to believe that our righteousness is through faith, period, not by works. Help us to believe that you have kept our covenant on our behalf because we never could. Jesus, help us believe you love us in an unfathomable way. Grant us faith today. In Jesus' name.